Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. My guest today is award-winning author Mary Cronk Farrell, and on this pod we will be discussing her book about the life of Catherine Loire, a French photographer who travelled to Vietnam at the height of the war, where she made a name for herself in a male-dominated environment. Bold, determined and cool under fire, Catherine accompanied marines and soldiers into the dense jungle, waded through rice paddies and parachuted into combat despite being told she didn't belong in a man's world. A word in which she shared the discomfort and dangers of the soldiers she photographed, or where she was wounded and taken prisoner by the NDA. Her photos captured the human face of war, and she's published America's leading newspapers and magazines, forcing Americans to confront the human cost of the war. Based on Katrine's most personal correspondence, Mary's book, Close Up in War, also showcases her most powerful photos by an extraordinary woman who deserves to be better known. Don't forget to like, follow, and share details of the podcast, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from doesn't take long and brings it to the attention of a wider audience. Finally, if you enjoy the content, you can help with the ongoing costs like website hosting and you can buy me a virtual coffee via link in the show notes. Let's crack on. So Mary, thank you for coming to the podcast, our first guest of the year. And can you start by telling us a bit about yourself and your writing career, please? Well, Colin, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about my most recent book, Close Up on War. My writing career has been publishing books similar to this, True Stories About Historical Women. I phrase it as women whose courage helped shape history. And most of them are relatively unknown So I'm always thrilled to bring attention to amazing women from history. For instance, my book, Standing Up Against Hate, is about Black women 
who were in the U.S. Army during World War II, and a large group, a battalion of those women, actually were deployed to England. They were um, up in the Birmingham area, and their job was to sort a huge backlog of mail that the Army had that was near the end of the war, not enough personnel, and yet these letters and packages meant for the soldiers in Europe were so important. And so these black women were sent over to take care of that backlog, and they did a great job. And so that book is about more than just one woman. It really features about 60 different black women who were amazing, really, for that time in history in the 40s to join the army, leave home, leave family, friends. They were among the most adventuresome women of that time. That's interesting because I didn't realize that the American army and forces were segregated during World War II until about a decade ago. And also there's a very, I'll need to send you after the podcast, but there's a a famous incident in, in Britain at a village where there was some black servicemen stationed nearby and they were told they couldn't drink in the local pub and the American MPs went down there to evict them and the locals came outside and said, no, this is not happening. These guys are welcome to drink here. So it was an interesting sort of culture clash. A lot of these black soldiers were from the South and they were meeting these villagers from a country village in England who are standing up for their rights. Yeah, that's a terrific story. The The black women that I talk about in my book, many of them mentioned how welcome they felt while they were in England. So that, that's interesting. Actually, I can sense another podcast there, Mary. A <laughs> 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 so, subject today, and I'm going to ask you to pronounce this lady's name because I always get it wrong whenever we've had a, the, sort of the pre-podcast discussion. So can you just tell me this lady's name so I get it right? Well, it looks to us English speakers like Catherine Leroy, but it she pronounced it, of course, in French because she was French. And I don't know about my French accent, but the best I can do is to say Catherine Leroy. Catherine Leroy. So thank you. And as you say, she's a French woman who established a reputation as a war photographer in Vietnam. And... She wasn't the first female combat photographer because in World War II, there were women like Lee Miller, who was famously uh, photographed in Hitler's bathtub, and Dickie Chappelle. And Dickie Chappelle took photographs at Iwo Jima and Okinawa and was sadly killed in Vietnam in 1965, the year before Katrine deployed. But what I find so interesting about her is that despite being a civilian, she fits the title of this podcast very well in that she was unconventional, and she saw as much combat in Southeast Asia as most American soldiers. And she was at the Battle of Way during the Tears Offensive, and she even took part in a combat jump in 1967, along with 845 other airborne infantrymen. What's also remarkable is that she operated in the jungle, which is one of the most challenging environments for soldiers, with no training and having to prove herself before eventually gaining the respect of those soldiers that she was capturing on film. And when you see the cover of, of your book, she's tiny, she's small in stature, but she also has huge reserves of courage and determination. And she's a force of nature. And she was described by Tim Page, another British uh, Vietnam War photographer, as 
a tiny fly, a mosquito-like person. She has this dogged perseverance. She was always popping up with a picture. And she was that small, she had to have uniforms made to fit, and to get her boots to fit, she had to stuff the toes of her jungle boots. So, what made you specifically write about this woman? You've talked about other women have inspired you. What was so compelling about this story? When I first discovered her, I was just reading different things on the internet, and the first thing that really caught my attention was just the drive that she had. She just had this determination to be in the thick of the action. She wanted to be at the biggest battle at the fiercest time. She was cool under fire. Not that she wasn't afraid. She had a lot of courage, but she um, was very cool under fire. And the other thing I think that really attracted me to her was I had been a broadcast journalist. And I think maybe every journalist at some point in their career thinks, oh, I want to I want to be in combat. I want to, you know. And of course, I thought that, but I never even came close to that. But the perseverance that Katrine had to get the story, that appealed to me. It got my blood pumping. I knew that feeling. And at the time I was beginning to write this book, there was a whole big thing, especially in the U.S., going on about fake news. There was a lot of fake news being put out. And I really felt like it was important to get back to kind of the basics of what journalism is and to tell the story of a woman who risked her life to tell a story to the American public. And that was not a fake news story. Her work is an example of what journalism should be. And I particularly write for teens, kids. And so I wanted to offer that um, just sort of like a reality check. When we're talking about news, here is an example of what we're talking about. That's uh, really interesting that you say about the fake news piece, because yes, you could have faked photographs back then, but it wasn't as ubiquitous as we see today. And it's quite revealing that children now are being brought up in an era where they can't trust what they see and you have to you know, second guess what's going on and, and do other checks. And also, I think photojournalism from World War II to Vietnam is also interesting. So in World War II, you had iconic photographs like the flag raising on Iwo Jima. And that wasn't fake news, but there was, there was two pictures there. There was the iconic one that's the, the statue in Washington and the one that was there earlier, but they weren't safe. And they were widely promulgated and morale-raising. And I sometimes wonder if this influenced the unrestricted access the U.S. military gave to photographers in Vietnam, where uncredited journalists like Catherine could just jump in a helicopter at a whim and ride into the jungle with the troops. And 
In the end, it backfired and helped feed the anti-war movement when the public saw images like the one Eddie Adams took of a Saigon police chief executing a Viet Cong guerrilla during a Tet Offensive. And my country learned from this that they had serious strict embargoes on journalists that went to the Falklands War. And this in turn has given rise to the embedded journalist where maybe ties in not so much with the fake news aspect but how the military controls the media these days. And then you've got the ubiquity of smartphones and social media means that maybe the relevance of a war journalist is not seen as important as it was in the past. I was just wondering what you think about a couple of things I've put, said there. Well, everything you said is true. And I think that we're just in, we're like two or three worlds away from where we were in Vietnam as far as photographers and news coverage. And I think you're right that the U.S. government, too, or at least the military, I'm sure in the end they did regret the openness that they had toward journalists in the Vietnam War, and they made sure that didn't happen again, which that's what governments do. But I do think with the ability now of pretty much anyone with a phone to be able to take pictures. I heard about this young woman just last week in Gaza, and she had just got, gone to school and wanted to be a journalist, but she never really done any journalistic work. And then suddenly she's in the middle of everything that's happening in Gaza, and she just starts videotaping and putting it on Instagram. And she became a huge source of news from what was happening on the ground in that conflict. So there's opportunity, definitely, that we didn't have before. There's danger, as you mentioned, that we didn't have before, or, or not in the same way, of pictures and sound being able to be manipulated. I think all of us, kids and adults, are really challenged to a higher level of responsibility in what we choose to watch and listen to and how we take it. And and, and one thing that hasn't changed is when you look at the, the deaths in Gaza at the minute and on the front lines in Ukraine, journalists are still paying a heavy price for going to war. Yes, um, in the first months of the war, I think there were four, just in the very first three or four months, there were four or five journalists killed in in the Ukrainian war. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's Afghanistan, Iraq. If you add up the numbers, they're quite horrifying. But we sort of touched on a little bit of the war already and wars in general, but can you tell us a little bit about Catherine's life? growing up in France, leading up to her decision to go to Vietnam, and what sort of person was this woman? One thing that's interesting is that as a child, Catherine was actually frail. She suffered asthma, and her mother once said, the last thing I would have ever expected her to do was become a combat photographer. But even though she was tiny and maybe didn't have the best of health, she had a streak of independence, and she knew her own mind, and she did not hesitate to rebel against 
whatever authority it was, her parents, the school, she said that she went to six different schools between the ages of 11 and 15 because she kept getting kicked out as a bad element. Those were her words. <laughs> Another thing about her, though, when she was six, her father loved uh, classical music, and so she started studying classical piano when she was six years old and was kind of on the road to becoming a concert pianist. And though in her teens decided she liked jazz much more, the fact that she was trained as a concert pianist as a young child, I think, is another example of that ability that Katrine had to focus and to achieve what she put her mind to. I mentioned in the intro that she took part in a parachute jump with the military in Vietnam, and the only reason she was able to do this was that she, I think at the age of 17, she qualified as a parachutist in civilian jumping, and she did 84 civilian jumps and 34 free-fall jumps. So again, sports parachute at this time was in its infancy, and I think this also gives another insight into her bravery and character. For sure, yeah. She said a couple times that she took up skydiving to impress a boyfriend, a guy that she was dating at the time. But that may have been why she took it up. That wasn't why she loved it and became, you know, so good and had so much experience. What sort of influence were her father and mother on her? Did they support her decision to go to Vietnam when she did it? Uh, her parents were not happy that she went to Vietnam. Her mother in particular, I think, was very worried about the danger to her daughter. And so uh, they weren't really supportive. But I think long before she went to Vietnam, they had reached the point where they couldn't uh, stop her from doing what she wanted to do. Yeah, obviously what we talked about, she's a very uh, independent lady. So it's 1966, age 21. She goes to Vietnam on a one-way ticket and with only 200, the equivalent of 200 pounds in her pocket determined to make a name for herself. And this wasn't uncommon at the time because you had people like Tim Page, the British photographer I mentioned earlier, and Sean Flynn, who is the son of the actor Errol Flynn, who later went missing the jungle. So there's quite a few people making their way over there the adventurous, looking for the big break. Can you describe what this period was like for her and the difficulties she faced? I think maybe the first challenge she had was that she wasn't trained. She had no photography training. And she was learning on the job. And she went over there on her own, so she was a freelancer. And the challenge of being a freelancer is that Nobody's paying you unless you get a picture that they want to buy. And so you're all on your own to get yourself to where you can take the pictures. And then they have to be good enough so that somebody wants that one. She made contact with the bureau chief for AP, Associated Press, and he said he would pay her $15 a picture. That gave her enough to start, but if you go out and, like, she may have shot two rolls of 36 pictures and brought them back, and maybe 
Associated Press only wanted to publish one of those pictures. So um, being a freelancer was a very challenging existence at the time. And like you say, there were a number of men who were doing the same thing. And everybody was kind of, I mean, that type of person who was there was hoping that this was going to be their ticket to success in the field. So there was a lot of competition. Katrine would have had to build relationships, for instance, with the military so that she could even get to where she wanted to take pictures. She would get permission to take like a small plane from Saigon to the Marine base, Da Nang, or go to the Central Highlands. She'd have to take a chopper to get to where the fighting was happening. That was a challenge for her, connecting with people. She didn't speak English when she first arrived. And so she also was learning English, but apparently she learned enough because one of her challenges in order to connect with the people she needed to connect with to succeed, she had to prove herself first to the military commanders who she needed permission from to accompany the soldiers into the field. And then once she was there, she had to gain the respect of the soldiers themselves. At first, she went out there in one of her first trips out into the field with, with a, a patrol. She said, I can see in their eyes, they don't trust me. But she was able to earn the soldiers' trust, and earning the respect of the soldiers was one of the things that contributed to her success. She spent more time in the field with the ground troops than any photographer in Vietnam. Yeah, that, that's interesting because as a former soldier and no matter what you think of people, you do judge on first appearances. And I could imagine a small woman like Katrine turning up, going into the jungle. You'd, straight away you'd be worried, is she going to hinder us? Is she going to go down with heat exhaustion? But she carried all her kit and she kept up with the biggest of the soldiers. And as you say, it's quite clearly, as you describe in your book, that she does earn that respect from them. And the other remarkable thing was, is that Robert Kappa, the famous photographer, said, if your pictures aren't good enough, you aren't close enough. And she really bought into that, didn't she? Yes, she did. And it was it was her kind of mantra. And she was not ever afraid to move forward. In Vietnam, in that war, there weren't front lines like um, had been the same in previous wars. And there was no front in Vietnam. It was a guerrilla war. So when she was out with the troops on patrol, something could happen. Violence could break out in an instant. Or they could be tromping through the jungle for two weeks and nothing would happen. So for her to get those close pictures that she wanted... She just had to be there all the time, and she had to be in the thick of it. What I found interesting was, in the book, there's a passage where you describe her experiences in some of the jungle patrols. And she said one of the things that's, that challenged her was the fact that she could get out of there any time she wanted, and the soldiers couldn't. 
and she had that much of an affinity for the soldiers that she felt guilty whenever she left. She had to. She only went out for five days and wanted to go back. There was a guilt that travelled with her on the helicopter, which I found quite interesting that she developed that affinity so much. Yes, yes, I I found that interesting too. I think it just went to show, um, to her nature, to the sensitivity of her, uh, the artistic sensitivity of her that she got so close to these subjects that she couldn't help but identify with them. Yeah. So I want to move on and just have a chat about some of the pictures she took. So her remarkable courage and tenacity to get the best pictures, perhaps for me, uh, encapsulated in a parachute jump at Op Junction City, Operation Junction City in 1967. And this remarkable woman, there's pictures of the book of her getting rigged up and she's with a parachute harness and she looks tiny compared to other paras around her. Then she dump, jumps out, not content with jumping out, she actually takes photographs as she's floating down into the drop zone. Absolutely amazing. But then, when she establishes a name for herself, is with a trio of photographs she took of her marine corpsman, which is a medic, helping his dying friend. And she took these on Hill 881 during fighting near Quezon in 67. And these photographs are in the book, and you can Google them on the internet as well, because they're very, very famous. Why did these photos make such an impact and what recognition did it bring for her? You know, that's a great question. And to um, to explain really these pictures, I need to go into how she got them because that part of the story is incredible. She had gone to Quezon, the battle had been raging there, and in the last two weeks before she got there, more Marines had been killed than the whole time prior in in Vietnam. And there she was, in the thicket of it. And she mentioned afterwards that she was lucky. She was on her own there at this particular hill. The other journalists were stuck in Quezon, and she had gotten a chopper out to the command post. Then when this assault started, she was right there. She was with the Gulf Company of of Marines, and they were to go up this hill and try and take it. But at the top of the hill, the Vietnamese were dug in in bunkers. And one of the other, one of the Marines there said, there's a quote, he said, the only way we were going to get them out was to drag their bodies out. So this was something that I think most um, people would shy away from. But she she went right up there with the Marines. It, it, I guess the first wave went up, and many of them, I'm sure, fell. And a second wave went up, and she was slightly behind the third wave of Marines going up this hill. And it was a steep hill, and it had been turned. It had just been gutted. It had been burned with napalm. It had it, it had been a jungle, and now it was just a big mess. It was mud, it, ashes, and she had to just grab onto anything she could to pull herself up that steep hill. And then she saw this corpsman 
he was not far from her and had seen a friend fall, be shot. And so he went to him and she is snapping pictures. At the time, it was dusk. Um, it, the, she didn't even know if she would have enough light that these pictures would turn out. And to think about the skill, it wasn't that she had, you know, a phone camera where she could click away. She had to be adjusting the focus and the aperture for how much light she could get in. She had to be concentrating on a lot of technical things to get these pictures. And the pictures that she ended up with was a series. Actually, it was originally a series of five or six the three that were published and became famous showed this medic basically approaching his his uh, dying buddy and realizing that he was seriously wounded. Then one of the pictures shows him placing his ear to his heart and listening to the heartbeat fade and realizing his friend is dead. And then in the uh, last picture, he just kind of raises his face to the sky in what I think is shows just great anguish. And he's in this background of just destruction. And it was such a very human moment. Um, and that progression of him that made these made these photographs incredible. Yeah. Is it Life magazine that published them? They were published in Life. Six pages of her photos were published. They were published by NBC News. They were published on the front page of the New York Times. They were published all around the world. Um, she was very proud of herself that on the, in the front page of the New York Times, she actually got a credit. Her name was there with the photos, which was unusual. Later on, at the end of the year, she went on to win the George Polk Photography Award, which is a coveted award for photographers. And she was the first woman ever to win it. And it was for these pictures. I just want to emphasize to listeners, when you see these photographs, as a former soldier, for me, what stands out is, as you correctly pointed out, this wasn't jungle fighting at this point. This hill had been stripped of all this vegetation, and she's lying there. No doubt had to expose herself quite a bit to get up there and get close to take this photograph. And they are an absolutely remarkable set of photographs. You can see the sort of comradeship and the angles as you describe it in these photographs. So I'm not surprised that they got the attention they did. And later that year, she was wounded by mortar fire, and she had shrapnel wounds and a, and a broken jaw. And I think you wrote in the book that there's a, she writes at some point that she reckoned her cameras probably saved her life to stop some of the shrapnel getting to her. After she was hit, she wasn't really even sure what happened. But once she had been taken to the command post and was lying there with the other wounded soldiers, she thought about her film. She was going in and out of consciousness, but she, she knew they were going to fly her out to a hospital ship and she wanted to get her pictures delivered so she tried to open her cameras and she couldn't because 
they were damaged by the shrapnel and they were caked in blood. So at that point, she realized she she realized that her camera, so two Nikon's, she had a third camera too, but had saved her life. Be clinging around her neck. I mean, she got she got shrapnel in her in her arms, in her legs, in her neck, and her head. So that chest area really was protected. Her vital organs protected by her Nikon's. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah, remarkable. Uh, when she was evacuated to that hospital ship, I think uh, a sort of a idea of a standing is given by the fact that she was visited by General Lewis Walt, who's commander of the United States Marines in Vietnam at that time. And again, I keep going back to the size of this woman. When you see the picture of her in that bed with a general next to her, it looks like a father visiting his young daughter. She's, she, you know, she looks tiny in it. Yeah. It's really incredible the respect that she had, for instance, from General Walls. I mean, he was as high as he could go in the Marine Corps over there, and he came to visit her personally. Uh, she, I guess she heard the announcement on the ship that he had come aboard, but she had no idea he was going to knock on her door. Yeah, it must have been uh, quite, quite a thing for that, and... I remember reading as well in your book that she got presented with parachute wings after that parachute jump she made with the army as well. So again, she's getting this recognition along the way uh, and, and breaking down those barriers. But she soon returned to the field and found herself in the middle of the Tet Offensive, which took place in 1968. And for listeners that don't know, this was a massive North Vietnamese Army and Viet Cong offensive. It took place basically all over Vietnam and really rattled the Americans. And even though the Americans beat uh, the, the offensive off, it was actually quite a bit of a watershed in the Vietnam War and really shook the American public's faith that they could win this war. But one of the biggest battles was around Hue City, and that's where some of the most vicious fighting took place. And there, she took some remarkable pictures of North Vietnamese Army soldiers, and I think they were among the first ever taken. And again, the the amazing courage and ingenuity of this woman. Uh, can you describe how she got into the city and the events that unfolded when she was there? Well, she started on her way on her way to Way City on a bicycle. <laughs> she was trying to get there from Da Nang, and she caught a ride, and then 
there was no one else going. So she was traveling with a friend, another French photographer. Photographer, His name was Francois. And so they got bicycles and rode into town. And when they got there, the streets were empty. They heard gunfire popping in the distance. And they got very nervous when they saw people peering out looking at them because there was no way to tell friend from enemy at that time. And so they were walking along through these streets yelling out, bonjour, bonjour, so that um, people would not think that they were American and hopefully they would not be attacked. Eventually, they came to the uh, cathedral in the city that was overflowing with refugees. It was crowded with over 4,000 while on the grounds and within the building, mostly well, all women, children, old men. And so finally they had reached something, um, some sign of life in the city, and she did take pictures there. But they feared that if Vietnamese came, that they could provoke an attack. These people could be hurt because they were there. So one of the young boys there volunteered to take them out and lead them through the territory that was held by the North Vietnamese to the American section where the Americans were in control. And they changed out of their military clothing. They emptied out their backpacks of everything, put civilian clothes on. Uh, Katrine hid her American and Vietnamese military cards and several cans of exposed film in her bra. If they were captured or if they ran into the enemy, they did not want to be identified with the Americans. And as they were walking along, they did run into the Vietnamese. They were captured. They were taken to uh, an area where there were Vietnamese, North Vietnamese soldiers just kind of waiting there. And their cameras were taken, their hands were tied behind their backs. Um, Catherine it, it says she was very scared, um, did not know what was going to happen. And for a while, nothing did happen. There were, they were there, but eventually an officer came. And when she and Francois said, we're the French press, we're from, Fer we're from Paris. So when an officer arrived, he had them untied and gave them back their cameras. This is where I really believe Katrine showed her stuff. She took pictures. She said, um, the people in France want to see how things are going here with you. So I want to take pictures for a story on how the uh, North Vietnamese army is doing in this battle. And so they allowed her to take pictures. And then um, the uh, friend that was with her said, you know, I think maybe we ought to be going well. <laughs> and Unbelievable. they weren't really sure they were going to get out of there. And, and as the war progressed, the journalists who were captured by the North Vietnamese did not make it out alive. Um, but 
these two did and the pictures that Katrine took, as you said, were, if not the first, among the first pictures of the enemy as that Americans saw. And it, they tended, it, the pictures humanized them a bit. They had a huge impact. They were published. Uh, this was huge for her career. One of her pictures of these Vietnamese soldiers was on the very front cover of Life magazine. The headline was, A Remarkable Day in Hue, The Enemy Lets Me Take His Picture by Catrie Loire. There were eight pages of her photos, 11 of these photos from Hue when she was captured and of the refugees. There were wonderful pictures showing the refugees that were just caught in the middle of this battle. I think what's remarkable is that I've read quite a few accounts of soldiers' sort of memoirs in Vietnam. And, you know, quite a few of them write, it wasn't unusual for them to be involved in a year over there, multiple firefights, and barely see the enemy. They'd see the dead, but they rarely saw the wounded because the Vietnamese tended to drag the wounded away and very rarely saw live enemies. So for her to have the, the courage and the chutzpah, I think is probably the word, to get herself these photographs is absolutely amazing. So at this point then, she's started to gather success, but she's also, I think, starting to divide opinion a little bit. So how is she regarded by fellow photographers in the military at this point? She had started to make some enemies. But maybe maybe enemies is too strong. But when she first arrived, the other photojournalists, I think they thought she was cute and they were friendly and they were nice and she was fun. But when she started taking pictures that were better than theirs and when she started winning awards, many of the photographers turned against her and they were jealous, I think, and they actually tried to get and were successful getting her press credentials taken away. She was able to get them back. She never was forced to leave the country, but they went to that extent to try and stop her. Um, it's just really incredible when you think about these men ganging up on her and trying to push her out. Um, I read that they kept a little black book where they wrote things about her that they could complain about. They said she was too dirty at times, and she swore too much. You know, um, earlier I said she didn't know English. She always said she learned English from the Marines, so she had a very colorful vocabulary. <laughs> And um, so it was things like this the other photographers would would gather as evidence that she should not be there representing, you know, the news. So she had a tough time, in fact, when she came back after winning awards at one point, she said, I'm getting telegrams from people all over the world that I never knew existed, and I'm being hated more than ever. Yeah, I, it's uh, professional jealousy a lot of it, isn't it, and sexism? Yeah, yeah. It's funny because um, there's a quote from Don McCullen in your book, and he said that 
basically she didn't fit the mould that some expected of women at that time. And I think a lot of people expected women to be at home in the kitchen and that they had no place on the battle space. And sadly, some of those attitudes still exist in the military today, but those barriers are slowly getting broken down. But I think not only is it the sex of it, but I think a lot of it is just, even if you push that to one side, a lot of it is just professional jealousy, do you reckon? Right, and ego. I mean, these ego, yeah. These, these photographers and journalists in co- combat had big egos, <laughs> and so that was wrapped up in it. Yeah, that, that's men in general, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, one of the one of the things that really drew me to her in the beginning when I wanted to write this book was. She really was ahead of her time. I mean, as you say, there have been uh, one or two other women photographers that were photographing conflict and war, but nobody really had done what she did. And this was at a time when she first went to Vietnam in early 1966, that the second wave women's movement where women were really... um, trying to claim equal rights in the workplace. I mean, that was just in its infancy. And yet here she was in the most masculine of careers and succeeding. And you take the backdrop to that time in the 60s. You had um, all the quality fights going on. There was a real sort of turbulent time in American political and social life. And um, you just wonder as well how much that coloured people's views on things. For sure, for sure. She leaves Vietnam in 1968 and didn't go back again until 1975 when she covered the drawdown. I'm just curious as, as to why you think she made this decision. Were those sort of physical and mental issues from her combat experience starting to wear down? That's true. They were. Um, she said, I was suffering. Um, I mean, she had lost a lot of hearing in one ear. She was definitely beginning to suffer from being amid the violence there and the death. And as you said, she she was there for three years. The soldiers, most of them, were there for one year. She's remarkable that she didn't get killed. Um, but what did she do after Vietnam? And we've sort of touched on it there. How did her experiences in Vietnam affect her life after that? Well, when she first came back uh, to the United States, she did some photography. She did some news photography. But she really was um, suffering PTSD, and she took maybe a year off where she really didn't do anything. And what kind of saved her and I think brought her back was when she worked on a documentary film called Operation Last Patrol. And this was about Vietnam veterans against the war. And um, Ron Kovac, who became famous in the film. um, Born on the 4th of July. Right. He and she worked on this together. And and they just followed 
Vietnam veterans who were protesting the war on this epic journey to the Republican convention in Miami. They were there to protest American involvement in the war and to protest the Nixon presidency. And these Vietnam veterans, when they would turn out at protests, they would be attacked and beaten by police. And so I think that making this film was very uh, healing for her in a way, not because um, the veterans were getting beaten. Didn't word that quite right. Um, This was a way for her, I think, to move on from her experience in Vietnam, to be with others who had similar experiences and to do something of importance like making this documentary. Do you think that made her a pacifist? You know, she said that her experience while she was in Vietnam changed what she thought. I mean, I think she was like many other people in Vietnam at the time. When they got there and they saw that the war was just not what they thought it was. And um, she definitely did not end up taking the types of pictures she thought she would be taking in Vietnam. The pictures, she she said at one point, I finally realized the reason I was there, and it was to take these pictures showing the compassion of the soldiers, not how brave they were, not how raging the battle was, but their humanness. Um, I don't know that she became a pacifist, but I do believe that her opinion of the war changed over time. Right, okay, that's interesting. And she also did go back to some war zones. I mean, she went to Northern Ireland in 1972, Cyprus during the Turkish invasion in 74. In 1975, she went to Lebanon, and she actually won another award there from the Overseas Press Club of America for the photos she took in Lebanon in 1976. But compared to some of the other photographers, the male photographers we talked about during the podcast, Larry Burroughs, Tim Page, and Don McCullen, she's largely been forgotten, and this baffles me. But why do you think this is? I think that one of the reasons is because after the war, she did not, I mean, after she retired from combat photography, she did not get the assignments that could keep her career going like the men did. The men, when they retired, came home, and they were heroes, and they were given assignments, and they were paid a lot of money to take pictures. And that didn't happen for Catherine. Um, she did some fashion photography in Japan for a while. She always had a penchant for fashion. But I think it was pure sexism. Do you think maybe the difficult reputation that she developed in Vietnam, along with that sexism, might have played a part as well? Yeah, she was not that easy to work with, I've heard. And so possibly that could have cost her uh, jobs. The other thing, you know, she ended up dying when she was 61. Now, some of those Vietnam photographers are still alive today. Yeah, Don McCullough's about 85, yeah. Right, and taking pictures. So part of it 
was was that and um she died of cancer and who knows if it was related to what she was exposed to in vietnam um when when i am talking with vietnam veterans about the book that is a common thing i hear them saying oh i bet she was exposed over there yeah things like agent orange and other defoliants and, and things like that right yeah that's, that's interesting so as you said, she died in July 2006 at the age of 61 from lung and pancreatic cancer. And she once said, What I did was to give war a face. We are left with photography even more powerful today than when it captured the fractured moments of chaos. Now it's history. What do you think her legacy is? Well, that certainly sums it up, giving war a human face. Um, in her obituary in The Guardian, it said, in a war, the easiest subject to find is a bleeding corpse. The real genius is to take a picture of a living person without a drop of blood showing and record the suffering in a single human face. That sums up her photography really well. What what a great thing to say about her. At one point after she had retired, she did an interview, a photo shoot with Peter Jennings, who was the anchor on ABC Network News at the time. <laughs> and he reportedly turned to someone as she was, um, as he was leaving and saying, she's a very famous woman, a legend. You couldn't have a war without her. <laughs> That's a great quote, isn't it? That's a fantastic quote. I love that. Um, so one thing I meant to ask you at the start, Mary, and I forgot was, what does Vietnam mean to somebody of your generation growing up and now? Well, I don't know if this will answer your question, but I have to tell you, writing this book was extremely painful at times. I was a child during the Vietnam War, and I knew that it was going on. My family did not have a television, so I did not see the pictures that the rest of America was seeing. I do remember my mom listening to the radio and hearing on the news when they would read off the names of the fatalities. But when I was writing the book, I did research, of course, on things that we know today that we didn't know back then about how the government, well, let's just say the high-up military and the administration in Washington were lying to the American people. And when you know what was happening behind the scenes and then you read about these battles and three Catherine's photography and three her her little notes she took about people she met, you're seeing these young men dying. And it was incredibly agonizing for me at times. Yeah, I can imagine. And one of the more incredible things about the Vietnam War was it was the sort of the, the blue-collar men that did the, the dying. A lot of the uh, 
Senator's Sons, it's like that Queen's Clearwater song. You know, the Senator's Sons don't have to go and fight, but it's the the kids that don't make it to college and uh, the poorer kids that, that get sent off to die over there in droves. Right. And, of course, the black men. Yeah, who, who actually, we go back to what we talked about at the start. Segregation in World War Two meant that they didn't fight as much in World War Two, but they were overrepresented in the Vietnam War. That's so that's, that's all right. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's it's a shocking one, and and actually still huge impact on uh, America today. But I've done podcasts with American soldiers over the last couple of years, and uh, still veteran care leaves a lot to be desired, especially mental health care. This. The suicide rate amongst Iraq and Afghanistan veterans in America and in the UK is absolutely shocking. Yes, it is. Um, and I've been doing some reading, too, about women veterans. Of course, now um, with Iraq and Afghanistan, women veterans is something we haven't experienced before. And it's particularly difficult for them um, women veterans in the United States are more apt to be homeless, more apt to have um, mental health issues than the men. And it's, as you said, there's something really lacking. That's interesting because when you hear about veteran suicide, you, both the sexes are just lumped in together. And I didn't realize that when you break it down, that uh, women veterans are more likely to suffer from those issues. That's That's interesting. Yeah. So on that, we'll, we'll we'll pick things up a little bit and finish off in a bit more of a high note. So we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, which is the guest choice of book, film, and luxury item. So as an author, Mary, I'm very interested to see what your book choice is. Oh well, <laughs> you know I have always wanted to read War and Peace, and I just have never had the time. So. I was thinking that if I were on a desert island and I had nothing but time, the one book I would finally read would be War and Peace. Well, you'd have to be stranded for a couple of years to get through it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to say I've read it, but I'd be lying. And, and, and what would your film choice be? You know, I had a really tough time with that one. I don't really have a favorite film that I would want to watch over and over again. I, I'm i the type that really likes the plot, the story. And so once the story unfolds and I know the end, I don't really want to watch it again. <laughs> so if you could take a second book? Uh, gosh, you're really putting me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, it ha have to be another Russian author, I think. Yeah, okay, okay. So how about, yeah, that would be good. Um, that one that I can't think of the name of, I can't remember the name of. <laughs> so, oh, so that's, pardon? That was unfair. That was unfair of me. I shouldn't have put you on the spot. So we'll just move on to your luxury item. Uh, that I can choose pretty quickly, and it would be chocolate. All oh, right, okay. That, that's a good source of energy. It's a part of, yeah. <laughs> no, that, I just hope it's not a tropical island, Mary. It won't last very long. It'll melt. <laughs> this is true. Uh-oh, maybe I better change that answer. 
So my choice on this episode is Mary's book, Catherine Close Up, uh, Catherine Loire, uh, Close Up of War. Mary says it's not a book about Catherine Loire. It's a deeply personal introduction to a courageous, passionate, and fallible young woman who sacrificed immeasurably to convey a story she believed was imperative for the world to understand. And I think we've got that across what she's like as a character, what her principles were, and what she did to get that message across. And I like the style of your book, Mary. It's quite unusual. It's quite a small book, but it's very well illustrated with lots of Catherine's photographs. And so it's, it's like a showcase for her work as well. And you said earlier on that you write a lot for young people and teens, and that was quite evident. Because I did laugh at the end when you had a little section on how SLR camera works for the uh, Apple iPhone generation. <laughs> yeah, that was that was very necessary in order for them to understand what Katrine was really doing day to day. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you described that perfectly earlier on when you were saying, you know, when she's on that hill near Kaysan, she had to look at her apertures, her focus, everything. It's not just a point-and-shoot thing. It takes a lot of skill to get that those settings right. So where can people get a hold of your book? Uh, Close-Up on War is available at your local independent bookstore. If they don't have it on the shelf, they're very happy to order it for you. You can also get it online at bookshop.org or wherever you get your favorite book. I have a, it's on yeah. one of my website, and you can buy it from there. I have links on the website. Fantastic. And please, listeners, I know most people listening for like a book, and it's always great to support independent bookshops. I try and buy my books from smaller bookshops. And book.org is where we keep a list of all the books we re- recommend in the podcast, so you can get that there with the link in the show notes. So, Mary, that was a absolutely fantastic talk i really enjoyed finding out more about katrine and i hope everybody else will now get your book and go and research her and start spreading the news about that remarkable woman well thank you colin i have really enjoyed talking with you and of course i just love the fact that you're helping to get the story out about katrine she certainly deserves to be known and um I appreciate this opportunity to talk about her. So thanks thanks very much for having me. No, you're welcome. And thanks also to our listeners for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming. And our email social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. You can find us in all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And if you download us from iTunes and like the podcast, it would be great to leave us a view there or anywhere you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing help and offering technical support for his company ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 